I think one of the key points is helping can be just being present, Mm. just being present and in the moment, not having to say the right thing, not having to come up with a solution to a problem, just being present and listening and giving space. That can be incredibly powerful. Back to the Wake Up with Welbrook podcast. I'm your host, Chris Welbrook. So glad you're joining me today. Now, last week we discussed stepping into fear and how you can apply simple principles to your life to propel you towards your goals. Now, if you happen to miss this episode, feel free to check us out on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. Now, I'm excited to announce our next featured guest, Adrian Panetto. He's a PhD candidate in counseling psychology at Indiana University. Now, Adrian is one of the most down-to-earth and intellectual individuals that I know. Now, in today's episode, we discuss his story, how he focuses on joy rather than happiness, and his principles to a meaningful life. You're not going to want to miss this. Now, before we get started, though, I would really appreciate your support. So please head on over to Instagram and follow us at Chris Welbrook. To support the podcast financially, please visit patreon.com backslash wakeupwithwellbrook. And for more details about the show, as well as a brand new blog that drops weekly, please visit wakeupwithwellbrook.com. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show. All right. Welcome back, people. I'm joined by my good friend, Adrian Panetto. He's a doctoral candidate in counseling psychology at Indiana University, Indiana University, excuse me, at the Bloomington campus. So one of the most down-to-earth, genuine people that I've ever met, and I'm I'm really excited to have him on. I've been actually he was one of the first people that I, I contacted to get on here. So I'm glad that we finally were able to do it. So welcome, Adrian. Thank you. Thank uh, you for the invitation, Chris. Oh, pleasure, man. Um, so you're almost done with your your doctorate in counseling psychology and you know, my first thing that I really wanted to talk to you about was was that journey. I mean, that's a pretty specific field. That's a that's a really intensive field emotionally too. So, um, I'd love to hear your journey. What got you interested in that? Um, yeah, we'll just get started on that. We'll see where where this conversation goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, like I said, first off, thank you for the invitation to be able to to share a little bit of my story and my journey and, and my life. Uh, really, my the beginning of this chapter in my life of being in the counseling psychology program and, and all the growth that has come with that started likely back in undergrad where I was a part of a research team that helped people who, who you know, had a diagnosis of OCD uh, or phobias in any way. And I, what I would do as part of this research team is I would help the therapist or the clinician um, do, you know, specific interventions that they would uh, need. Things like, um, you know, um, you know, eating or passing away or passing um, contaminated things that were maybe, you know, germ filled and things like that. And there maybe there was a particular phobia about. And I was a part of that. I was a therapist aide and I really, um, you know, was able to participate in that kind of clinical direct um, treatment of, of people. And that got me interested about how can I do some of that myself? How can I 
you know, be able to help people directly in that way. And so after undergrad, I uh, decided to apply to PhD programs and I decided to get into a neuroscience PhD program actually. And thinking that I wanted to understand more of the neurological basis for some of these conditions and being frank and 100% honest, I hated it. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> uh, really thought that's, that's what I wanted um, initially. And this is a fairly common experience for a lot of PhD students where there's a period of time where you think you want something and then you realize you know, what it entails and, and what the future looks like. And so for me, that was around a halfway point, around three years in. And I had an option, kind of this crossroads moment of, do you continue on and push through or do you pivot? And I think we don't give ourselves enough opportunities to be flexible and pivot at these crucial times. And luckily I had a fantastic advisor and great mentors. And I really leaned on my faith and, and my partner, um, you know, during that really difficult time. And so decided to change, uh, left that deep doctoral program with a master's and moved into what I am now, which is in counseling psychology. And I think the reason why I decided to transition from a neuroscience PhD, which is very research focused and very much just sitting in front of a computer uh, reading articles, writing papers, mm. the only really human contact that you would have would be with participants that you would recruit or you would um, you know, collect data from. So there really wasn't a much personal contact there. And I'm a people person, learned that very quickly on, in that PhD. And mm. so when I decided to transition, I was like, what, what is it that I really enjoyed about getting a doctoral program and, and you know, uh, myself and leaned back into what I learned in my undergrad and that was helping people directly. Mm. And so counseling psychology uh, was something that I really attracted me. I was really motivated and passionate about. So I kind of took my shot and applied. Um, admitting this on, on podcasts is so interesting, but I only applied <laughs> to one PhD program in counseling. And that is unheard of. That is very rare to one, only apply to one program and two to get in. Yeah, um, that is, you know, the odds of that happening are very, very low. And so but luckily, you know, um, that happened, I think it was divine intervention, honestly, yeah. and, you know, got in and, and really enjoying the process. Now I'm, I'm writing my dissertation currently. Uh, but part of what this PhD program in counseling has taught me, right, has been, one, a lot of personal growth lessons, but two, what it really means to, to sit with people, even in their darkest, most difficult moments. Um, you know, being a counseling psychologist, an aspiring one, uh, you are with people at their most vulnerable. And so I've learned a lot about myself through this process. I've learned a lot about what it means to help people uh, being with them. And I've learned a lot about how much the world makes it difficult. Um, when I say the world, I mean, maybe society, or circumstances or systems or um, institutions make it difficult for us to live mentally healthy lives. And so I know that's a long winded answer hmm. uh, there, but I, that's sort of my you know journey in a nutshell. No, I love that. And I can totally relate to getting into something, thinking it's one thing, and then you're in the middle of it and you're like, wow, I didn't realize I loved human interaction until I had none. 
yeah. that's that is a great way to sometimes you don't realize that until you're you you don't have it or the absence of something like that um i'm gonna i really loved that introduction though um i'm gonna pivot back though because i know this people are gonna have this question is counseling psychology different than counseling or mm. so if i'm going to say like a counselor is that different than a counseling psychologist or is that just more of like the research end of counseling that's doing like the yeah i don't know i'm not going to try to talk because you're, yeah, you're the expert good, here that's a good question and a common one that that most people have so some of it depends on the context in which you're seeing a counselor or a counseling psychologist so in in the school system for example when you see a counselor you don't typically see the counselor there for therapy Right. You mm -hmm. see them maybe for academic assistance or you see them for some kind of guidance or coaching. So a counselor in that setting is more of guiding your academic progress. Now, a counseling psychologist is equivalent to somebody who you would go to as a therapist. Right. OK. Now, there's some confusion and it depends a lot on which state you practice in or who you uh, speak to, um, because you could go to a mental health counselor. Right. In that case, that is a therapist who is trained in providing mental health services. So depends on, you know, the right. The term counselor can be applied to multiple different mm -hmm. professions, but depending on the context, whether it's in the schools or whether it's mental health related, they mean different things is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I, I'm moving more towards saying I'm a psychologist who okay. you know, came from the school of thought of counseling psychology. Just like you would think a clinical psychologist, maybe mm -hmm. someone who hears may hear that. Uh, we are all psychologists. We just come maybe from different schools of thought. Okay, that makes more sense. Because, yeah, I think that you can throw around the word counseling a couple of times and it means different things. And like you said, different states, they all mean different things. So um, thank you for clearing that up. I do have another question back to when you were in the undergrad and you were doing, you were the, the aide or an assistant, what was it called? Yeah, it was, uh, my official title was therapist aide. Okay, aide. And you were talking about the people and like working with patients. And I don't know if you can talk about this, but I'm, I'm going to ask anyway, with like super, like really a bit bad phobias, severe phobias, whatever you would call it, right? Like what would be the treatment for someone or what would be what you guys did in order to help those individuals move past the phobia? Was it just like avoidance and all ends or was it like, we're just going to throw you into the deep end. Mm -hmm. You're going to face this phobia and then you're going to realize you're still alive <laughs> and get through it. What I'm hearing you say is what is the maybe treatment for uh, phobias? And so Specifically, kind of the gold standard, according to the American Psychological Association, uh, and specifically the division within clinical psychology, the gold standard for phobia or OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, mm -hmm. is uh, a combination of things, um, but mainly uh, one of them being uh, cognitive behavioral therapy with uh, this kind of tagged on element to cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's exposure and response prevention. Typically, it's abbreviated CBT ERP, exposure okay. and response prevention. And so all that means is, is that within a CBT framework, which CBT stands for cognitive behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. where you focus on thoughts, behaviors, and feelings, there is this sub kind of, um, you know, uh, not school of thought, but more subfield where you work on exposure and response prevention. And all that means is you work with people who have phobias and OCD 
that may be experiencing some of the anxiety or obsessive uh, thoughts and the compulsions that come with that. And so what you try to do is uh, avoidance is a typical response that clients may have or that patients may have. And what you try to do is expose them to those things and knowing that that's going to cause anxiety, right? If you think of it, it is like anxiety being from a scale of zero to a hundred, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in public speaking, people typically say, you know, when they ask the question of how much anxiety do they feel, they say about, you know, 60 to 70 out of a scale of that hundred. But somebody who has a phobia or, you know, some kind of OCD compulsion, their anxiety might be at like 80 or 90, right? So if you expose them to it, you know, that anxiety may increase it, may increase to that level. However, over time, this process of habituation, meaning that over time it decreases. So now when you're exposed to it again, it no longer goes up to 80 or 90. Now it goes Mm -hmm. only up to 60 or 70. And so you do that enough times that stimulus or that situation or that phobia right around contamination is a very common one. Contamination meaning things get dirty or there's germs on things, kind of like needing to wash your hands a lot of times. Uh, Now that response only elicits a 10, you know, 10 increase of anxiety. Eventually it doesn't increase at all. And so that's what we're, what I did and I helped with And we saw some really great results with with people. And we saw everything from contamination to thoughts around harming others, um, to thoughts around um, social anxiety. Um, So really kind of a range of different experiences. I can really give you a cool story, but I'll leave that for some other time, I guess. Okay. Well, I might have to get back to the end of it because now you're leaving me on a cliffhanger on that one. (laughs) But... um... I just love that. I think the, the, one of the biggest takeaways that I got from that is you got to see like re unwitnessed firsthand, like real tangible change, right? Sometimes when, you know, at least my experience as a scientific researcher, you're working with such less like minute part, like I'm going to study this one gene that affects this one protein um, on this microscopic cell, right? And you don't see the big picture, but it's really cool to take a step back and, and see such like tantamount and paramount change. So that is amazing. Um, I will come back to that story. Don't think I forgot about it. But um, you so you mentioned the pivot, right? You're at that crossroads. And I really want to dive in a little bit more into you'd put in all this work, three years of I just can't even imagine how much grueling work has been to do a science PhD and a neuroscience PhD, excuse me. Um, So walk me a little bit more through that experience of what do you think were what were lessons that you learned upon through that time, you know, you can bring in your faith through this if you'd like to. Um, but what were those components that gave you the courage to make that? Because how many people in life are at a crossroads where they feel like they're backed up against the wall? And they're like, well, I've already committed so much time, even though there could be an even better option around the corner if they had that faith um, and the courage to kind of step out into the dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. So I think one of the main takeaways from that period of time for me was recognizing that there's an opportunity cost to everything you do in life. Do you pursue option A or do you pursue option B? Mm Do you start a PhD program or do you uh, enter the workforce? And given that there's an opportunity cost into everything, right? We only have so much time. You have to recognize what really brings you the most joy. And I use that word very intentionally. Joy, I think, is crucial to living a meaningful life and how do you live 
according to your values and your principles that provide you that joy. And so for me, you know, halfway through that PhD program, those three years, I realized that continuing on pushing through could be an option, right? That, that could that, that could have been something I, I did. However, it would have cost me so much of my joy and it would have cost me so much of my principles and values that I, that I believed in. And so that just wasn't an option for me. And so you, in those moments, you really have to have conviction and you really have to go down to what's crucial, what's core, what are some of your core beliefs? That's some CBT language I'm bringing in. Hmm. And for me, that's core belief is, you know, I feel, I believe I'm meant to help people. I'm meant to uh, directly impact and see you know, people get better. And I wasn't seeing that and I wasn't doing that. And what was motivating me in that PhD wasn't that drive. And so don't get me wrong, it was hard to make the decision because I had already invested three years, but there is no conception in my mind of, of my life, what it would have could have been like had I continued on. Mm. And I think many of us sit, you know, have these moments, right? When it comes to careers or when it comes to relationships or when it comes to moments in our life where we have to make these crucial decisions. So what is it that we lean back on in these moments? And for me, it was those core beliefs, those values, that drive of, of believing in joy and, and that being part of my human experience in, in my life. So you said you, cho- you chose to use or you use joy intentionally. Could you go into more depth? Because a lot of people just want to be happy, right? And I hear that mm-hmm. all the time that they're just like, I just want to be happy. But joy is different than happiness, right? So could you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So you're correct. I think we, we sometimes, you know, when you ask people, what, you know, what, it, what makes a meaningful life? They say, oh, I want to be happy. or I want to be. Mm-hmm. And happiness can be fleeting, right? You can be happy one day and you know situation happens and you lose your happiness and kind of circumstances may impact your level of happiness and i'm sure there's research on this and and articles that you can look up but i think joy is more fundamental is it's more difficult to move or shift into uh you know into different ways and maybe this is just the way that i conceptualize it but for me when i apply it to what I was experiencing that first PhD in the neuroscience PhD, I was not happy and I was not joyful, right? It was mm-hmm. both. Right. Um, and, you know, both of those were absent in that one. And that was the, op- you know, the opposite of those things, which was miserable. And I dreaded going in and I, you know, hated, you know, using the word strong word here, hated the idea of who I was and, you know, kind of getting to an identity point here. And, that doesn't mean that now that I'm in this PhD program in counseling that I feel that I, you know, I feel like this is my purpose and my meaning that I, you know, there are moments that I'm not, that I'm unhappy, right? Of course there are, right? There are moments that are difficult, that are hard, that I lose my happiness. However, what continuously drives me is this joy, is this joy that I think is directly tied to a meaning and my purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that was absent in, my, in that first PhD mm-hmm. and is not absent here. 
even when it gets hard, even when it gets difficult, like I said, I'm, I'm writing my dissertation right now. And for anybody writing their dissertation out there listening to this, you know how difficult it can be. You understand the, the grind and the kind of the day in, day out, uh, the, the moments of self-doubt and the moments of not wanting to do it. However, what is what you lean back on? And for me, that's a joy. For me, it's a you know, fundamental core beliefs. And, you know, this PhD has been a pleasure to do, even with uh, the ups and downs and the, the moments of unhappiness. I love that. I love that. that reminds me, I'm, re- I'm reading this book right now, and I don't know if you've read it because it's, it's, about, it's about joy, actually. It's, by, it's a conversation that is a book about a conversation that was had between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was a really influential in, in the apartheid or like the resistance against mm-hmm. the apartheid in South Africa. And they talk about joy. Um, and the and being intentional with using that word. Um, I'm only halfway through the book, so I'll have to have you back on when I actually finish the book, and then we can have a review of it. But I do. I want to dive even further into this joy thing because I keep having this. You bring it up, and I love it. But like, what does joy look like for you in your in your daily life, in or maybe in like a you know a little more grander scale, and you know in a season of your life. But when you say you, you fall back on that joy, and that's one of in your core values, like what does that, what does that look like? I'm trying to paint a picture here, give you maybe some- That's good. I would love story. to take a venture into your mind. This is why we're here. <laughs> um, what does is, what is joy feel like or look like? Um, like, is it an action? Like, is it, is it, are you carrying yourself differently? Or is it, are, is it also how you perceive things? I guess like, for people, I'm just, uh, there's going to be people who are listening who are like, great, like joy is just a word to them, right? And how, how does that feel different than feeling happy? I guess that's where I'm going for. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think part of my experience with mm-hmm. joy, and it also I think is tied to this other word that I've been exploring more recently, and that's delight as mm. well. I think joy and delight are, are interlinked in my mind. And so what, what does it look like for me? I think, about, I think about the hardest moments in my life, right? The moments that I've questioned myself, I've questioned who I am, I've questioned where I'm going. And in those moments, what have I fallen back on, you know, as a driving force? And that's been joy. And, and so what does that look like practically, right? On a day-to-day mm-hmm. type thing. Um, I, think, I think that looks like, I think it colors my relationship, colors mm-hmm. my conversations with people, it colors my outlook on life, it colors my, um, I guess my values and the way that I look at things. So even when things are difficult or hard or I go through experiences that are challenging, um, that joy, you know, still drives that. So let me give you an example that's coming up to mind right now. I think mm-hmm. about one client that I had, one of my first ever clients as a beginner counseling psychologist, practicum student, right? So this is my first ever experience with practicing my counseling skills and helping people and doing all of that. And this was a client that was initially very difficult to work with because there was a lot of differences between me and them. And 
it was, I was, you know, I had a hard time kind of knowing what I was doing, questioned myself, all that. These are common experiences for a, for a, a counselor, for a beginner counselor. However, you know, towards the middle of our work together, we really began to connect around some of our differences. You know, you know, like they were older, I was younger, they liked certain types of music. So I, I didn't really know that much about it. And so that was, that was a great opportunity to connect. My experience with the practicum with this client ended, right? My time ended and this client was gonna work with a different counselor uh, after I finished my practicum experience. And then one day as this transitioning is, transition is happening, I get a phone call from my advisor and that phone call, and in that phone call, she says, hey, I just wanted to let you know that actually it wasn't my advisor. It was the new counselor for this, for this client. Okay. Let you know that this client passed away. Wow. And that, that was to hear that phone call, you know, to, to get that news was, was, as you can imagine, difficult, right? To hear that this client had passed away. And of course, we, we don't know all the circumstances and the details and all that, but just knowing that they had passed away and it happened after we had concluded working together um, and then we're gonna begin with a new counselor. And that was hard to hear. So how is this connected to joy, right? It was hard to hear, it was difficult, right? I was grieving this client and my time together, yet at the same time, I was joyful that we spent that time together. Mm. I was joyful that that even occurred because this client, you know, there was that initial disconnect, right? They could have easily never returned, but we had a whole beautiful, what, you know, therapists call therapeutic relationship that we got to build and form and connect over. And that's something that kind of stays with me and has, has helped me in, you know, some of the difficult moments of this program. But I leaned back on that joy of being grateful. I know that that's one of your favorite words, Chris. Mm-hmm. I was being about grateful. to just, you stole my thunder. <laughs> being grateful <laughs> for that joy, um, being grateful for that time and, and the joy that we experienced together uh, during during those sessions. And so... And so that, for me, it's it's what it's leaned on. Um, you know, of course, it was hard. It was difficult to hear the news, but I was happy and grateful and joyful of the time that we spent together. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's you. You took the words right out of my mouth. That I I see that that direct connection between joy and gratitude, and you know, it's hard to have one without the other. You know. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a. It's a touching story. It's a hard story, but it's a beautiful story in that, you know, you you can look back and have joy and and delight in, in having those moments um, because it could have happened so many different ways. Yes. Um, wow. You know, there's something else that you said earlier that really stuck with me. And you said you were you're you were talking about what you've learned on your on your journey as a counseling um, psychologist. And you said that, you know, you sit with people in their in their darkest hour, in their darkest moments, excuse me. And you said you've learned what it really means to help people. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean to you now? And has that changed since, you know, you began the program or since you kind of grew up? Yes, yes. Um, 
So I think what this program has taught me about helping, um, you know, has really transformed that radically for me. Um, I think one of the key points is helping can be just being present, mm. just being present and in the moment, not having to say the right thing, not having to come up with a solution to a problem, just being present and listening and giving space. That can be incredibly powerful. And oftentimes, I think in our culture, we try to scramble around to fix problems and see what put a key into a keyhole and try to try different keys and find the one that fits. But it's okay to just be just to be right. Um, and for, for me, that's been incredibly transformative as a counselor with, with clients um, to share that with them and be present in the moment and let that be. See kind of where it takes us, right? Um, that's been one of the ways the program has, has shaped the way that I see helping. Uh, also not being afraid, right? Uh, not letting fear drive you, kind of being, being encouraged to be brave and take risks. And I think one of the ways that that happens and one of the analogies that I think about is if you can imagine somebody falling into a well and you know you walk and around you you're walking and you hear somebody yelling and you're like oh there's a well and you kind of approach it and you see the person down you know on the in the well and you see them crying out for help and you know you have two options do you go get help or do you jump in with there with them mm. right and sometimes when it comes to therapy and and it comes to helping people the best thing you can do is jump in there with them um, to, to help them um, to be there in that situation. Now, that's not to mean that you should do that all the time, right? but that can remind people that, hey, I'm here with you, right? Uh, we're going to get out of this together, right? Um, so that's sort of where the analogy, analogy goes. And so um, that's one of the ways I think about help that we don't do enough in I think our culture, a lot of the times, again, we try to come up with solutions rather than just being there. And I know we're going to wrap up here and I really appreciate you, you being on here. Uh, but I'd love to just kind of give you the mic at the end and, and ask you, what are some principles in this can be open. It can be about life relationships, um, career, anything that you want, right. Mm -hmm. But that you would like, the listeners to know or things that you've learned along your journey that you have said, wow, like these are, these are really powerful for me. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm, I'm gonna let you take that away. Really trying to condense these. Uh, I know. <laughs> into as my, and so, so I'm going to give it a big title. I'm going to say Adrian's <laughs> rules for a meaningful life. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. Uh, yes. Like soup Adrian's for the soul. Universal rules for a meaningful life. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to write these down. I'm, I'm going to publish here. it. Watch out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm being bold here and I'm being I know. You got to back it up now. So important. So I'm going to give you three, three rules for a meaningful life. I think number one is loving yourself hmm. right? and loving yourself slash knowing yourself, self-awareness, right? incredibly crucial, incredibly needed. 
that could be multiple podcast episodes. Okay. Yeah. Loving yourself, knowing yourself. Rule number two, knowing your value, knowing your worth. And then rule number three, cultivate bravery. Mm. Cultivate bravery in emotional and in, in relationships. Don't be afraid to take risks, emotional risks, financial risks. Um, cultivate bravery. Yeah. So number one, know yourself, love yourself. Number two, know your worth and value. Know your worth and value. Number three, cultivate bravery. Yeah, those three. I love it. Why? Why cultivate? That seems like a very intentional word. Yeah, I think cultivate in particular because it's something that you continuously, like you think like agriculture, right? You cultivate yeah. um, different crops, and bravery is something that. I don't think we cultivate enough of in the sense that not just be bold and rash and, you know, overly confident, but cultivate the bravery to do the difficult things, even when they're hard to do, right. even when nobody's looking or when there's a lot at stake, um, but also cultivate the bravery to forgive yourself, cultivate the bravery to take risks emotional risks in relationships and with people around you cultivate the bravery to ask for forgiveness mm. it's kind of where i'm at with it yeah i love that when i think of cultivate i think of because sometimes when you think of bravery like you said you think of the cocky person who is going to just like run at the problem head on and they don't have any fear and one of my like one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to butcher it because um, I don't even know who said it. So I'm going to have to come back and, and edit this on here. But, you know, bravery doesn't mean that you're not afraid. It just means that you do it anyway. Right. Yeah. And when I hear the word cultivate, I think of something that grows, like you said, agriculture. And so that bravery has to grow from within you. And you have to constantly be replenishing that and growing it. Right. Um, and giving that the resources that it needs in order to grow within you. And then that will radiate out and allow you to do brave things. But it's not about like I, the fake it till you make a thing. That's not what it, bravery is about. It's about having that worth within you. So they all kind of bleed one through three bleed into one another. But I love how distinctly different they are. Yeah. Yeah. And those were off the cuff. So you know, maybe I can refine them over time. When you write your, but, when you write your, your best-selling <laughs> memoir, we will have a good, I'll remind you of this. I'll send you the link to this episode. Appreciate that, Chris. Appreciate it. And I appreciate your time and, and doing this and, and letting me share my story. Oh, well, it's been an app. The honor is all mine. It's, it's just, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on here. You're going to be a reoccurring guest. I already know. Cause then next time you come on here, it'll be Dr. Panetto. And then we'll hear all about what you're doing here. So um, really quick before we um, get off, what are your next steps? Cause I know you've got some big changes coming up in the future and then I'm going to, I'm going to log us off. Yeah. So my next steps are number one, finishing my dissertation, both finish writing it as well as defending it to my committee. Mm. And that going well, hopefully everything, you know, my committee approves it and they you know, say you're good to go and mm. you can now be called a doctor. And then the second step is finishing my uh, doctoral internship as part of my degree. And that's something that counseling psychologists, clinical psychologists, anybody who's getting any kind of PsyD 
would be doing at this point, doing their internship. And so for me, that's gonna be at Duke University uh, here uh, starting in August of 2022 and ending in August of 2023. So it's a whole year of working in their counseling center with students uh, providing services and hopefully doing a good job while we're there. And after that, it's um, figuring out how to adult, how to get a job, seeing where we wanna end up geographically, my partner and I. And so that's what the future holds kind of in the next two to three years. That's awesome. Well, if anybody who's listening is going to be at Duke University, you're going to have to look up Dr. Panetto and find him because he's the nicest person that you're ever going to meet. So if somebody comes into one of my therapy sessions, they're like, I came here because I heard this podcast. I'm going to be over the moon excited. Just say I'm going to have to give you some, I got to make a business card. Then I'll give it to you and be like, you need to give this out because clearly you are the best promoter that I've ever had. So (laughs) thank you, Chris. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it, man. We're going to get out of here, but um, we'll see you again soon and best luck with the dissertation and the move in the fall. I hope you enjoyed the episode and please don't forget to subscribe at Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And for more information, please visit us at our website at wakeupwithwalbrook.com. See you next week.